I'm very competitive. I want to win in everything I do. I think that's why I'm in this sport and that's why I've gotten to Formula One. Welcome everyone to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. The Formula One world descends on Sochi this week for the Russian Grand Prix. So what better time to speak to the country's only current driver on the grid? He's racing for Haas in his debut season. And the man I'm talking about is, of course, Nikita Mazepin. Nikita is a race winner in GP3 and Formula 2. But his early races in Formula 1 were tough. And the gap to teammate Mick Schumacher was bigger than many people expected, myself included. But then a small breakthrough came in Monaco, since when he's been more competitive. But it's all relative. Haas declared before the start of the season that they wouldn't develop their car this year, choosing instead to focus on the new technical regulations in 2022. So Nikita is having to learn his craft at the back of the field, away from the limelight. That has its advantages, of course, but also its frustrations. And Nikita has plenty to learn away from the track as well. Let's not forget that he arrived in Formula One under a dark cloud after causing outrage on social media last December following what Haas described as an abhorrent post. We discuss it all and Nikita is frank throughout. He doesn't shy away from any topic either on track or off it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Nikita, it's great to sit down with you and I feel have a proper chat. We're talking at Monza ahead of the Italian Grand Prix. I just wanted to start by asking you about Italy because you did a lot of karting here. I think you spent a lot of time here now as well. Does this place feel like a second home? Not really, no. It doesn't feel like that to me. My one and only home, which I'm very rarely at, is, is Russia. But Italy's been a place where I've been to, I think, the most in my life. I obviously had to move over here at the early age when I started go-karting. And uh, when you're go-karting, there is so many good quality tracks around Italy that you just get to go to all the little towns and, and cities. I've spent quite a lot of time here. I think it was around age 10. It was a big thing, you know, racing in Russia before and then doing a first international race, I realized how high the level is of the kids, even in the Italian championship. Everyone was so much better um, than the Russian championship, which I won before coming over. And it made me realize how difficult life is going to be from now on. What bit of a wake up call almost. Okay, I need to raise my game. Is that kind of what you were thinking? Yeah, it was very difficult because uh, I was aware, I was very young. Everyone else almost didn't speak English and at times looked very unprofessional, like you know, old go-karts and old stickers and stuff, but the engines and the the performance of the kids was just unreal. And what about moving away from home at the age of 10? How difficult is that? Well, moving away sort of came a little bit later. I think that was like the first excursion to, to my race. I took a flight with my back-in-the-day Russian coach, uh, flew over, <laughs> got my ass kicked and flew back. That's That's how it really was. But I sort of, I wasn't really allowed to race and, and train uh, by my dad at the time. I was only allowed to do it when I didn't have school because I couldn't miss it. And uh, in the end, I was only racing 
from June to August, including. Um, and then I moved over to Italy at around like close to being 12 when the decision was taken that, you know, I can actually train and do laps and laps and laps and laps uh, in, a, in a van. With... But how hard was that? I mean, who came over with you? Did, did dad, did mum, or, or were you just thrown out, um, <laughs> thrown out with your coach and away you went? Yeah, so my Russian coach sort of stepped aside. He was actually the first ever coach of Danny Kivet. That's how I know him from like the age of 12 and 13 we've met. But then he stepped aside and I've been picked up by a guy you probably heard of uh, called Oliver Oaks. Yeah, sure. And uh, he had Callum Islet at the time. And then I was his second driver and no one came over with me. I came over on my own. And uh, I remember I was living for numerous nights in the same hotel room with Callum or with my Irish mechanic or with Ollie. Um, and then my dad would come only to some races, but yeah, mainly it was me and the team. And all this, I guess, begs the question, why racing for you? Because it seems it was quite a difficult start for you. It was. My family is by no means connected uh, with racing, but it just happened to be so that I tried that sport. And because my dad had the, the idea of having to keep the kids busy when they're young, uh, you know, to do school and then sort of to have as little free time as possible. Um, what, stop you getting into trouble? Is that kind of what dad was thinking? Or? No, I think it's to, to challenge yourself as more as possible. So then when you get to the age of 15, you would be ahead of the other kids by, you know, seeing life, seeing the world and potentially doing some of your skills, you know, not just studying, but doing some sports. And uh, I was doing school, MMA, sports gymnastics, and a little bit of racing. And then eventually racing took over from those and uh, it was just racing and education i'm interested you say gymnastics as well because having a strong core does that help your racing somehow well i'd be lying if i'd said it helps now because i stopped uh, training like three times a week every week uh when i was around 11 or 12 so it was a long time ago well you know it was half of my life but sebastian loeb the, the world rally champion he was a very good gymnast as well that's cool. I mean, it's a very difficult sport. I know uh, the Olympic Russian athlete um, in sports gymnastics actually took his first medal in 25 years for Russia a few months back. So, What were you good at in gymnastics? Mainly everything to do with strength. I was quite good. Um, I was very quick to build muscles, but I struggled to rotate in the air for as many times as I wanted. So I think my coordination needed some improvements uh, back in the day, but strength exercises on the rings and i'm not sure in the particular terms not, are you serious about the rings yeah oh my goodness i was okay at like pull up pull ups and get ups and stuff like that how many pull ups can you do now uh now i don't remember i remember i won a competition when i was at school i did 29 uh, when i was like 10 <laughs> or maybe 12 um but then i broke my arm and that put me backwards so i think now i'm around 15 and mma mixed martial arts is that, is that a big thing in Moscow? Is it? Do a lot of your schoolmates, were they doing that as well? In Moscow, not so much. We obviously have regions in Russia, which uh, are like Chechnya or Dagestan, which that's sort of the only, like that's the like main sport, the, the national sport that they do. And obviously the athletes from those places are surreal. That's the sport that I truly loved since I was a kid. And I still love it now. Um, like if you give me a free weekend i will definitely go and, and watch some of those performances i think the athletes and how hard they have to push themselves for me is really fascinating 
And uh, back in the day, or even so now, um, there was a very famous athlete called Fyodor Yemelyanenko. And my dad took me to one of his fights and then I met his team and uh, his sparring partner became my coach, uh, who I'm very good friends with even until today. And, and we still train together for what, 12 years now. So yeah, that's uh, one of my definitely most favorite sports. Is it intimidating when you get in the cage? Well, I have actually never fought in the cage, so I'd be lying if I said what it feels like, but I don't know. I still have this uh, ambition. <laughs> well, the cage is closed, so there's no way to get out of it. I think the cool thing about fighting in a cage is that it's just you and the other person and the door is shut. You know, obviously in my sport, there is uh, big teams behind you. There's cars involved as well. And I think that's the purest sport there is. But then I think when you learn that sport even further, you realize that every sport has its own tricks with gloves and, you know, the lubricants to make you slide, etc. So I sense when talking to you, you are a very proud Russian. Yes, you've lived all over the world. You've worked all over the world. What does Moscow, what does Russia mean to you? To me personally, um, it means a lot of things. It wasn't a choice, but I was uh, moved out from home and had very little nights sleeping in my own bed and, and living in my own house um, since I was a kid. Made me go out and, and see um, a lot of things outside from my country, see loads of different places. Now I'm 22 years of age, I realize that, you know, I truly don't feel anywhere as comfortable as I do being at home. And, uh, you know, home is home. There's no way to replicate it. Of course, for me to grow as an athlete, grow as a Formula One driver, being in Russia is not very useful because, you know, there's no tracks, there is no people, there's very little things that you can do there's no simulators no teams but you know that's the time where i really enjoy to recover see the people that i enjoy seeing which are mainly russian yeah russia is a very special place to me and at the same time you know being the only formula one driver from russia right now is, is a special thing and what about this weekend's russian grand prix how proud will you be to be lining up on the grid i'll be very proud but at the same time, I, you know, I think it, the the position uh, that we'll be in is probably not going to be as far as I want it to be up the grid. But you know, I think Russia is a is a country of opportunities, and I think every year you start to see that there is more and more athletes uh, coming on top of some of the sports which weren't famous. And uh, when I started racing, autosport in Russia, you know, was dead. There was no such thing as karting or even formulas you know the nobody really knew about it only certain groups of people and if you see how far the whole sport has come along uh, in the last 15 years you know we are hosting one of the most beautiful grand prix in my opinion if not the best every year now and obviously we're going to move to a new place in 2023 so i think there's loads of opportunities and um hopefully i'll be on the grid every year for those let's talk about this season now where halfway through are you feeling at home in formula one now i don't feel at home yet um to be very very honest i mean it's a it's a huge step up and uh i've heard people say that there's two big career moves for a driver you know it's the karting to formulas and then there's formula two to formula one or whichever series to formula one and 
I always didn't really understand, you know, what it actually means. But I, I think being in that position, you totally realize, you know, the the pace of your life in Formula One changes completely from being in Formula Two for me last year. You know, ever since you start your day in Thursday, you just the weekend flies by. You know, there's no time to to get distracted, and I think it makes you a completely different human being in terms of the operational pace that you will be performing at so when you say it's a huge step up it's that aspect of it the pace of your life rather than the driving of the car is that what you're saying it's both um i mean what it feels to me in formula one is that uh, there is no bad drivers here and i think to be successful in formula one you need to let the driving come naturally to you and it should naturally come to a very top level because there's so many other things you need to be taken care of, such as, you know, starting from making sure you get a clean lap and, and finishing, you use the most uh, from the people around you, which is a very big team who can, you know, make you have the best setup or the worst setup for you. What were you expecting? I am not a big fan of expectations because, you know, you often expect something and then you'll be disappointed when things that you've expected didn't come to reality. So I didn't really expect anything apart from, you know, the the beginning of the year didn't come very natural to me. What aspect of it? The, the driving we're talking about here or? Well, there was a lot of aspects. You know, one of them was the, I think we've talked enough about it, but the chassis situation I've ended up in. There'll be a lot of people listening to this who won't know that story so so you've ended up driving a chassis that's heavier than your teammates how come i mean the story starts way before that obviously f1 teams to save costs they bring only one chassis to a test and because of the horrible incident that happened to roman last year in bahrain they would have carried over two old chassis but because of what happened one chassis was burned and Kevin's chassis was going ahead. The new chassis had to be ordered because they didn't have the car for the second driver. And we've tested both with my teammate the same chassis in Bahrain testing, which you know felt very normal. But ever since I've received the old chassis from the year before, so, um, so you're in Kevin or were in Kevin's chassis? I was from free practice one in Bahrain. It just didn't feel normal. And, uh, you know, there's no scientific proof of it, but um, it didn't feel normal to me and I really couldn't drive it. You know, the car just snapped at various times and, and it was very, very difficult to catch it. There was no confidence in it. So, you know, I've gotten a sequence of very difficult races where we needed time to figure it out and eventually... We've swapped chassis for the first time in Monaco. And uh, I think it was visible that my old chassis isn't as good as everybody thought apart from me. And then we've taken that chassis away, but we had the third chassis, which was obviously quite a lot heavier. But I preferred running it because the feeling of it at least was, was fine, apart from the you know physical reasons why it's just slower for a certain amount of time over a lap. And so... The new chassis came on in Belgium. Yep. And does it feel like a different car now? Well, it doesn't because I've, ever since Monaco, I've used the, the heavier chassis, which 
you know, felt completely normal, but just was heavy. Um, so the new chassis doesn't feel any different, but it's just quicker because it's lighter. The setup didn't change, nothing changed. And I'm really struggling to explain, you know, the reasons why it felt like that. But, you know, I've been driving for a good, for the biggest part of my life. And you know where the instincts come from. Sometimes it feels right and sometimes it doesn't. And then it just didn't. Did you ever reach out to Kevin and ask him about it? No, I didn't because I think that anything new in Formula One is, is better than old. That's not in only in Formula One, but any automotive parts, you know, they wear out. And obviously his chassis was new in the beginning of the year and they both got older as the season progressed. You know, he did 22 races in it. So I haven't actually met Kevin or Roman ever in my life. So yeah, there wasn't any opportunity to reach out to each other. Did Roman drop by at the Belgian Grand Prix? I think he did, but I, I haven't managed to catch Ships him. in the night, you were doing something else. Look, Nikita, tell me, what is your greatest strength as a driver? As a driver, I'd struggle to say, um, because I think every driver is a human being. And I think as a human being, one of the strengths that I believe I have is I can get annoyed when things don't go well quite fast, but naturally I want to give up and I don't want to do it again because it just feels bad. But the phase of me to take and come over it is, is very fast, you know, like even in some exercises and games with my trainer that we usually play with, you know, I'm very competitive. I want to win in everything I do. I think that's why I'm in this sport and that's why I've gotten to Formula One. Yeah, I'm very quickly to overcome the, the difficult parts and very quickly from not wanting to do it, I, I really want to get and try it again. So is it a love of driving or a love of competition for you? I wouldn't say I've got a love for driving, you know. I obviously love what I do, but that's not... Like for me, this sport isn't fun, you know. It's a job that uh, is very rewarding and it's, it's just fantastic to be able to grow as a human being, as an athlete in a certain direction and, and you know, get quicker and quicker every year and improve your driving skills and get better with every free practice or every lap that you do. But fun of driving is is bugging on a weekend with my friends uh, outside of Moscow somewhere where if you flip, you flip, you know, there's no, <laughs> oh, there's no thousands of people who are waking up, leaving their homes with families and going to, to work to make sure that you get the fastest car possible and then you compete. You're not letting anyone down. That's fun. So what the pressure of Formula One takes some of the joy out of it for you? For me personally, yes. Um, I Everybody says, and, and it's total truth, that you need to focus on enjoying it. But the reason why so many great Formula One drivers have said it as their advice is, is because uh, there's so much arousal around the sport that you as a driver very often forget to actually enjoy it. And I think it's a... It's a very difficult balance because if you enjoy it too much, then you're not applying yourself to the maximum. I, I'm a very strong believer of when you're doing 101% of your abilities, it cannot be fun. It's impossible. It's like in any other sports the same. But do you not think when you're enjoying something, it comes a little bit easier to you? You but can overthink like this sport. Yeah, but it's like a sufficient circle, you know, where do you start enjoying and uh, applying yourself to the most? I think that, you know, for some people it works better than others, but my psychology as a person works probably slightly different. David Coulthard once told me that he'd do the driving bit for free 
what he was getting paid for was bits like this, actually, the media and the sponsor work and all that kind of thing. You can't relate to that. Is that what you're saying? I think it's probably, yeah, I think it's maybe the older generation of drivers or maybe it's just a different mentality. I'd love to relate to, but I'm here to tell you the truth and that's not really the truth. Let's throw it back to 2019 where you tested the Mercedes. In a car that good, does it then become fun? Yeah, that day was pure fun, you know, because there was no expectations really from outside people. Of course, I wanted to get the most of it because I knew that I might not ever in my life, you know, get that chance again. But that car just gave you so much confidence and consistency and, you know, stability in, in driving. That I can see it still puts a smile on your yeah, face Yeah, because now. <laughs> obviously I'm having a very different year and a different car to drive. And I still very well remember what it feels like to return three and four and five in, in Barcelona, which were a completely different feeling uh, this year when I raced. And uh, it just comes natural to you. you. I know how to make the car go fast as much as every other driver does. But that car just did what you asked it to do. And it gave you so much indication if it's going to oversteer and step out that you yeah, could plan ahead. It was a huge step up. Uh, obviously, I've tested for Force India in the previous years. And as you know, Formula 1 gets faster and faster every year. I mean, not this year because of the regulation change. But, you know, 2018 to 2019 cars uh, was a big improvement. And Force India was a different car to drive in Hungary. Can we talk about Mick now? You've had some near misses. What's 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 going on there between you two? There's a lot going on. A lot and, and nothing at the same time. I think it's just two young drivers who are willing to get to the top of Formula One and who've been put in a difficult position where realistically, you know, as the year goes on, more and more we can fight with each other only. And, you know, for me, finishing P19 can be a highlight and finishing P20 can be a very bad point of the weekend. And, you know, obviously in any other category, you know, what's the difference between P19 and P20? But because it's like all or nothing, I think that potentially impacts his approach to me. But yeah, I'd struggle to say more than that. Uh, it, it is what it is. And I don't know how many years we've got left together, but I don't think it's going to be a smooth ride. It seems really sad because... You two have known each other for so long. You were karting teammates. I know that Michael Schumacher was a bit of a hero. I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you certainly looked up to Michael, didn't you? It seems very sad that relations have broken down to the extent that they have. Well, I wouldn't really relate to that. I think that the way I see the sport and, and anything you do is you obviously have your personality which is outside of the circuit and then you have your competitive personality which often is not the the nicest you know but it ultimately makes you work harder uh, get through difficult moments and and win at times and uh you know in regards to michael i have no shame in saying that i was racing for quite a long time with a white helmet until my dad gave me for my birthday the the replica of michael's helmet back in the day and i think it was 2005 or six, you know, and I was proudly wearing it until a point where I think a screw in my visor stopped going in because it was just too old and it obviously didn't take a long time with the Russian conditions in, in the weather. But 
Then I met Mick later in the in my life, uh, racing with him and karting, and it was the same. I mean, people don't remember, but it wasn't a, a smooth ride even then. I wanted to get to Formula One and win races, and, and so did he, and sometimes it was easier, sometimes it was more difficult, and sometimes we had tough moments. And even so now, I I like Mick to the bottom of my heart. I think he's a super talented kid um, who's done an incredible achievement in his career but that's outside of the circuit you know on the track i don't really care who i'm racing with you know i'm racing against a competitor car and uh that is the only car at the moment in in the last few races that i was able to get in front so on a personal level it really doesn't impact nikita do you guys need to keep a lid on it otherwise is this going to end in an accident and who knows what might happen after that I have a strong feeling everything's going to be fine. Tell me more. I've got confidence that, um, you know, we've obviously got media and and there are external factors, you know, why this competition is interesting for people. But everything I do, I do within the rules and I'm confident that there will not be any big issues. What's Gunter told you guys? Gunter Steiner, your boss? Well, he mainly told us that, you know, it's obviously stressful from the point of view where he sits you know i think when you're watching tv you probably get a completely different feel but i think when you're behind the steering wheel you feel a lot more in control of the situation and i think he just wants the best for the team he for him it really doesn't matter who's who's in front as long as you know when the times come for the team to be able to shoot points we get every single point possible and every single point that's not possible um you know for the team to allow the team to grow and and bring it back to where it was when it first came to Formula One. I think that's his only priority. And next year, if you have a more competitive car, do you and Mick both understand that you have to work together to drive the whole team forward? Well, we drive the team forward even now. Even now, now? okay. I have a a very good relationship with with his team. I, I really like his engineer, Gary. I think he's a really cool guy. Um, very experienced and Ed, his performance engineer. You know, I, I'm very good friends with the whole of his team and his mechanics are super cool, very easy to get on with. So I'm doing my absolute best to be positive in the team. And, you know, there's times when it's difficult being over and over and over again in P20, P19. But every single bit of positivity I can bring to the table when we're doing debriefs, I'm you know, I'm always trying to give it back to not only my team, but also his team. <laughs> the way you talk about P19, P20, yeah, it must get frustrating. I can see that, you know, you're a guy who was winning races last year and then to suddenly make that jump to the back, albeit in Formula One, takes a little bit of a adjusting to, I imagine. Yeah, I think, you know, the first four or five races in Formula One <laughs> were very not smooth for me. There was a lot of new things that you get used to and being in formula one just felt super cool regardless of the the finishing positions and it just felt that i had to put so much together um to make my my best job possible but now i i feel like i'm at times putting everything together that i can less often than qualifying because qualifying's are way more hectic than when they were in, in formula two you know the I was watching qualifyings last year in Monza, you know, when people didn't get to do their last attempt. And I was 
not really understanding what it is, but now I I totally understand how big of an issue that is in, in these cars. And um, now knowing that you do your absolute best lap, which I confidently would have been in top three last year, sometimes puts you in P20 or P19, as I keep repeating it, uh, it makes you not so happy when you go to sleep at night, you know, because I'm here to to do well. I'm not here to complete the grid. You know, I'm here to be in the high end of it. But at the moment, it's not possible. And I just believe with my heart that I will be able to, you know, get a point or something in Formula One that feels surreal. Winding it even further forward, Nikita, what do you think you can achieve in this sport? You, you've You've driven that Mercedes two years ago. You know what the best machinery feels like. You know what your rate of development has been this year. Do you think that in the right machinery, you can win the world championship? Yes, I do. Because otherwise, why would I be here? I mean, there's loads of people who haven't believed in me when I was in go-karting. Then those people changed and they didn't believe in me in cars. Um, and then they didn't believe I'll get to Formula One. But, you know, I've completed my FIA points system. You know, I've achieved them by racing on track and then finishing in, in high positions. I didn't get here through, you know, a chance. Back in the day, it was possible. Um, now, FIA has changed the system and it's not possible and it's much more demanding than what it used to be. So I really believe that is possible. I also believe that I f- progress massively from my first years. If you look at the record of, of me racing in the past, you know, my second year and, and third year in the same series, when I get comfortable, when I find the right environment for me, which is a special environment that other drivers don't need, I can get and I can be faster than those people. I'm getting the impression that you're quite stubborn in the <laughs> junior formulas. You were saying people didn't believe in you. And I think you're the sort of person wants to prove people wrong. Is that part of the motivation? Totally not, uh, because there's so many people uh, out there. And if I wanted to to prove them wrong, I'm a very big believer that every human has a certain amount of energy, which he can use in any direction he wants. And if you direct your energy to proving people wrong, you might be proving people wrong, but that doesn't have anything together with your results, you know. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to direct my energy towards my team to get the best environment for me, which is, you know, a special car with a special setup. I like a consistent car with a stable rear with little oversteer. Other people don't. So my biggest priority is to make sure that I'm extracting the most from my team. And the outside bit, I believe, will come naturally. Do you think Haas can give you what you need going forward? I'm sure they can. I think in every team in Formula One, there is only the best, the cleverest engineers and the best people um, there are in in this sport. And uh, Haas has everything that I need, but we just need time to learn each other. And if you look at the steps we've made forward and how much more positive even this mid-season part is looking versus where we started. You know, we've come such a long way. And and as they say, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day and I have time. Can we talk a little bit more about your old man, Dimitri? What kind of an influence has he had on you? Well, his influence really changed in the last uh, 10 years. 
I think it's very important to say that I've had more than I think 500 races in my life and he's probably missed 10 or 12. So that just puts it into numbers, you know, how much of his personal time of his life and his attention was spent with me. And I'm very proud of it. I'm very happy of it. But he's uh, he's been very, very intense with me from karting until Formula 3, including. And he was the first person uh, always to tell me that, you know, if I'm not able or not interested to take it further in the sport, there's always a way to go back to university full time um, instead of doing everything over Zoom and, and Microsoft Teams and, you know, take the normal life and then go to work in business. But that's been always my passion and, and I really admire that he's supported me all the way and he helped me to be here with his time, with his advices, purely based on me willing to be, you know, a Formula One driver and eventually, hopefully, becoming on the top step on the podium in that sport. What's the best bit of advice he's given you? It's difficult to say, you know, you're putting pressure on me here. The <laughs> um, reason I'm fascinated is that he doesn't have a history in motorsport. And this business is unlike any other business. So, hence, I'm fascinated to know what kind of advice he has given you. Well, the reason why I said you're putting pressure on me here is because I don't remember a day when we haven't spoke in the last many, many years. And uh, either I text him first or he texts me first every day of my life. And obviously we, we speak about a lot of things and sport and personal things and, and business, etc. But um, I think his best advices to me have, have been with things to do, you know, how to work in a team. He obviously doesn't know how to put a very quick lap together he probably does now after so many years uh, by my side, but his main talent in my point of view is how good of a team he's built around himself. And all of his team has been with him for over 20 years. Some of the people have been with him in university back in the day. Some were with him in the war in Afghanistan. So I think loyalty, how to make sure that everybody's going towards the same goal, even through difficult times when people fall out and have arguments and how to no, never give up. That's the best things that he showed me. Did he ever encourage you to follow him into the military? Technically, I am doing a military service right now um, in Russia. Not, not like right now? Like right now, as in the time of my life, uh, obviously. National service? Yeah. Uh, there's mandatory military service in Russia. And uh, if you're in university, you can um, either do it through like the elite forces, um, which is ma ma mainly based on studying, um, or you can go to army for a full year after you finish your studies. But uh, because I've luckily managed to get in there with... Um, passing through my fitness tests and, you know, fitness numbers and run, running, pull-ups, push-ups, etc., and also my educational marks. Um, I was able to get into elite services and that's the service that I'm doing right now. And to be honest, I'm probably going to get in some trouble for speaking about it. You can't really go into details, but uh, mm. 
yeah, I'm obeying to the whole uh, rules of, of Russia in that case. Has your dad spoken to you about his time in Afghanistan? Very briefly. What's he said? Well, loads of things, to be honest. Uh, but, um, you know, one of the most impressive things is that he was a translator there and he was, I mean, he today speaks uh, five or six languages, I'm not sure. And I mean, very difficult ones like Farsi and etc. So, yeah, the most impressive thing was uh, when he told me that it took them around four or five months to learn a language in university from zero to being able to translate, which, you know, I'm trying to learn Italian for a good few months now and it just makes me feel a bit of a shame. How many languages can you speak? I can speak Russian, English, obviously, and I'm making my steps in Italian, but I'm a very good understander, but uh, I struggle to speak at the moment. Your father's been very successful. How has his wealth helped your path in racing? That is a difficult question. Well, first of all, I'm a big believer that you are who you spend time with. I look at his success in a very positive way because I lived in the same house for many, many years. Uh, with him, we've had so many breakfasts, lunch and dinners. And when I'm next to him, I'm obviously learning from him and, and looking up to him in his successful mindset, you know, because there is something different about him and other people because of, of what he achieved. And he was born in a very poor family, first of all. So I think it opened up different opportunities for me. And it also allowed me to possibly try a very different route to what a Russian boy would normally acquire, you know, Normally you go to school, then university, and then you go to work in a company and try to make a living out of it. But because my dad has made it, it opened up opportunities for me to have the sporty background since I was a kid. You know, I was able to try loads of things, like I said, gymnastics and other sports. Then when I got to race, I was also able to continue my studies because we could afford teachers via Skype and, and Zoom, um, which helped me not drop out of school because I still turned up for the same exams, but I was able to have the people help me uh, and prepare. And obviously it's, it's more work, you know. I would have loved to go to sleep at night a little bit earlier or watch Netflix, but I had to catch up on maths or Russian languages or linguistics when I was 12 and we had quite a few arguments about that because I said, you know, nobody else studies and or very little people study. Why do I have to do it? But the older I get, the more I'm appreciating him being very direct with me that there's either we're studying and racing or there is no racing. How has money changed your dad, do you think? It's too early for me to speak. You know, I'm 22 years of age. But does he talk about it? You say he came from a poor family, so... I think he's one of the more normal people uh, that you will see you know you money for him means opportunities but it doesn't mean the financial stubbornness if that makes sense you know he's still very precise with money and the way he behaves he acts like a a very good human being even more so you know in russia the mentality is that you know your dad is is always right in in every well-mannered family dad is the boss of the family so I'm not very comfortable, you know, just speaking like that on, on his behalf. 
your dad will listen to this. Will he be smiling right now to hear you saying dad's always right? I hope he will, unless I, I would already get in trouble beforehand if I said something wrong. What do you make of Lewis Hamilton's claim that Formula One is becoming a billionaire boys club? I, I totally understand where this is coming from, from Lewis. I think he's an exceptional man and I feel very fortunate to have met him and, you know, exchanged a few words and, and shook his hand because, you know, even before I got to Formula One, he was uh, a very special figure for me that I looked up to. Where he's come from and, you know, with his background, it was even more difficult to make it to Formula One back in the day. Is he right? I don't think that is what's happening right now. I think it we could be living in a special times where back in the day, you know, loads of young drivers were supported by junior academies of car brands, energy drinks, and the number can go on. I think in my shoes, what I see is that it's important to look at success in not a negative way, but I think it is, you know, if you look at myself and my dad, I, I think it's a beautiful story of my dad supporting me in my ambitions and, and helping me to master myself and, and, you know, and get better. And, uh, I think it's a beautiful project that we've started with him when I was seven. He was driving me to the racetrack when I was young outside of Moscow every morning and you know, wasting his weekend when he could have done something else and spent so many weekends racing with me. And I think it's a project that hopefully will go on even beyond Formula One. You know, I think and I'm hoping that we will do something outside of the sport as well later on in my life. So, Nikita, are you saying that you think your circumstances are no different to another driver like Lewis, who was on a young driver program. He was with Mercedes. Um, obviously, they're all the Red Bull guys coming through. You mentioned them. Are you seeing a similarity? You, do you think your circumstances are no different to theirs? No, I'm not seeing it. And I would like to be very direct that our life in coming to Formula One is very different. I mean, different even that you have to remember that the world when he was becoming a Formula One driver was very different back in the day than when we're living now. And of course, to be picked up by a junior academy, you need to be very special with loads of talent. And I think that being helped by your father since I was a kid to encourage me when I had difficult moments in my time and, and saying, you know, it's going to be hopefully okay one day is uh, is very special but in the way of becoming a Formula 1 driver and the current system of the points that you need to acquire to get the license I think in that respect it is no different because you know I didn't just finish school and decided I want to race in Formula 1 I wasted a lot of free time to think about this sport I've started driving when I was 5 I moved away from home and didn't see my family and I've done loads of sacrifices, which every other driver on the grid has done as well in a very, very similar way. So I think we all deserve to be here. And the other drivers that I think this statement is referring to, they all won numerous Formula Series championships and have proved themselves to be the same or even better at times than the junior drivers from 
Mercedes or Sauber or Ferrari. So I think just because that could be an easy target to pick up on, I don't think it's factually correct. You've mentioned Lewis. Who else do you hang out with on the grid? I don't hang out with Lewis. Um, you know, no, I'm not a- implying you hang out with Lewis, but you say you've, you've met him. And I just, do you, when you're on the driver's parade, do, do you have any mates on the grid yet? Or <laughs> six months in, is it still too early? Well, I'm in a good relationship with quite a lot of drivers, but I have never in my life had friends, you know, in the paddock. Um, whether that was karting, whether rivalry's that was... too intense, is that what you're going to tell me? No, I just think. I struggle to find the people who think in the same way as me that, you know, what we do in the paddock and on the racetrack is nothing personal. You know, we are just trying to make the best job we can. We are just trying to become very good athletes and Formula One drivers and uh, just trying to make a living out of it. You know, nevertheless, regardless of the incidents or tough moments we can have on track for me those people are exactly the same outside of the track you know they're the same cool guys who've achieved a lot in their life you know i don't take it personal uh when i leave the circuit and i haven't found many people who who thought the same way and i have the people who've been with me since i was at school uh who i call friends and i'm very fortunate to have them and i just like my own little group you know from back in the day where i can be myself and I don't need to be worried on how I will be accepted. What about the other Russian Formula One drivers that we've had in recent years? I'm thinking Vitaly Petrov, uh, Sergei Sorokin, Danny Kvyat. You, you said you share a coach, or you shared a coach with Danny. Do you engage with those guys at all? Well, each of them is living a very different life after they have finished their career in Formula One. Obviously, Vitaly was the, the breakthrough. You know, he was the first driver. And I remember that that was a, such a big thing, uh, you know, for my country. Or maybe just for me, I don't know. But, uh, you know, I was obviously aiming to get to Formula One and him breaking the ice through was was a big day. And I remember racing in uh, Castelletto when he claimed his first podium in Australia. I have loads of very warm feelings for him. I've spoken to him many times. Same with Danny, and uh, I've actually never really spoken to Sergey, but they're all great guys, great drivers. And Robert Schwartzman, young guy coming through? Yeah, so actually with Robert, I remember it like now, we had two back-to-back races in Italy, and he was living with his family because his family moved abroad for him when he started racing. And uh, I remember sleeping in his house or maybe even sharing a room and hanging out. We were just, I don't know, 10 years old. I know him quite well, but I think when you get up the ladder and your team around you grows, you distance yourself from the other drivers, you know, because there's just not as much time. But um, yeah, he's the guy I've known the closest out of all so many years. And uh, yeah, I'm hoping that we'll race together again one day. In Formula One? Why not? If, uh, If there will be an opportunity like that, I'll be very happy to take it. Nikita, I do want to ask you about something that happened last December when you posted what your team has called an abhorrent video on social media. I haven't posted it. And I've said it numerous times that it wasn't my hands who have happened to upload that video. But it's been a very dark day 
for me. I remember like now I think it was 9th of December. And uh, as the time goes by, I look at it as an opportunity on, you know, learning further on how I should behave, learning further on, you know, how I can improve as a human being and, and looking at it on how I can actually make the the most to make it a better place for me you know to improve in general what was your reaction to the reaction to that post totally expected and a year on what did you learn how do you reflect on it now that incident has happened eight days after i was announced as a formula one driver and i think one of my biggest strength and in this incident came out as a weakness is when I was a go-kart driver and going to school, I felt one way about myself and the way I felt about myself and the way I felt other people feel about me, it has never really changed. You know, I was the same me from back in the day and I just happened to be signed for a Formula One team. But what I clearly was not realizing and I was missing is that I am now a driver in the eyes of a lot of people and the kids that are looking up to and there's a certain conduct and, and a behavior that you have to bring with yourself when you sign that contract and I just thought you know I'm I'm just the same guy no different and uh, obviously you, you have to change the way you behave and uh, it was a very big wake-up call. Do you feel you arrived in Formula One under a big cloud? Bahrain was a difficult race for very many reasons that didn't help at all but at the same time you know this sport was so many complexities into it and the speed that we're traveling at you know when the visor is down regardless of the situation that happened you know there's no mental capacity to to think about the outside things so it wasn't easy but uh, i don't think it really impacted me i'm interested to hear you say you think it didn't impact you because Bahrain wasn't a great weekend. When you look back, do you think it did all get to you? Is that one of the reasons why it was a difficult weekend on track? I think it was a difficult weekend on track mainly because I've showed some very good pace and built up to the confidence of the car that I had in testing. And I wasn't aware that the car that I'm going out in FP1 is not the same car. And it felt wrong, but I didn't know what's wrong and I didn't know what's different. And then that combined with that being my first ever outing in a Formula One weekend with the first qualifying, which was very hectic and the balance, which I didn't feel comfortable at and was barely trying to keep it out the wall and the pressure and the negativity outside. I think that in a combined environment made it very difficult. Well, look, let's... Let's end by throwing it forward. Maybe I'll be caught out and that you'll score some points between now and the end of this year, but it's looking difficult. So let's throw it forward to 2022 when we've got the rule changes coming. You've got your feet under the table at Haas. You've got a year's experience in Formula One. What are your goals for next year? The goals in Formula One are very difficult uh, to be set using numbers because I believe that ultimately, you know, the numbers are dependent on so many factors and some of them are, you know, how well your competitors design the car, 
how competitive your car is towards the the other cars on the grid and um, the biggest benchmark is yourself and that's the only way that I feel right now that you can look at and not get lost and, and use that as a sustainable marker to know where you stand and therefore you know I I know a lot of areas which I'm not happy with myself this year as a racing driver what, I'm not gonna... what areas do you think you've got to improve in as a racing driver well I'm not going to tell you them because <laughs> uh, I'm sure somebody will listen to it and, and use it in a way to get themselves better so I'll but when keep, you I'll look at the private. data Nikita and you look you're comparing yourself to Mick is there any particular area that stands out where equally you're good versus equally where you're bad it seems to me right now that i take more time than i would like to uh, to build up the the minimum speed and high speed corners that seems to be the biggest uh biggest feeling right now and and the other one is i believe i've got a very good feel of what the car is doing underneath me and perhaps that feels sometimes doesn't let me go quick enough when I'm not 100% happy with the balance. You know, I, I don't take it as far as I should do because the car will allow it. Yeah, being more instinctive and uh, taking perhaps more risk is what I'm feeling right now. And you probably will smile <laughs> when I say take more risk based on a few incidents and crashes that I've had in the beginning of the year but I think maybe that brought me slightly too much backwards so I need to find a middle line. And how excited are you about next year's car? What has Simone Resta told you about it? Told me not so much, showed me quite a few things. It's exciting to be in the project you know for at least two years in a growing project that is bringing out opportunities to me you know, to experience, you know, what it's like to finish in top 10 on pure pace. Because at the moment, as sad as it sounds, you know, for us to move up places, we need other cars not to finish, which is, you know, a horrible way of looking at it. I'm very excited because it could be a whole different world of of uh, what Formula One feels like. And I'm actually thinking back to what you said about the words of David. And uh, I think that what I've said earlier to you is mainly to do with that you know me or my teammate are lucky if we get two or three overtakes done in a weekend and that's ultimately what gives you that feeling of of your racing not when you're driving laps and laps and laps so i think hopefully if we sit down with you in 12 or 24 months i'll tell you that i'm getting paid the money for this and then that's just pure driving and fun and that's a great way to end it. Nikita, thank you very much for your time. Really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you. During that chat with Nikita, I learnt a lot about him, about his background and about his father, Dimitri, who's missed only a handful of Nikita's 500 or so races. They contact each other every day and so clearly they're very close. And what Nikita said about teammate Mick Schumacher was fascinating as well. And I'm sure everyone at Haas will be relieved to hear that Nikita thinks everything will be fine between them. Nikita, many thanks for your time and good luck for the remainder of the season. As ever, please send in any stories or thoughts that you have on Nikita 
And remember, I'll read out the best ones next week, so send them to me at TomClarksonF1 or use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Jackie Oliver after last week's show. What a man! As he himself summed up so beautifully, he survived being both a racing driver in the 60s and a team owner after that, and that's something to be proud of. Macca got in touch with this. The Jackie Oliver chat was great. I remember seeing the UOP shadow from Corgi Toys, and remember the team was based in my hometown of Northampton. We made so many of those cars at Metoy, and it started my F1 passion. What a lovely story. And Macca even sent me a picture of one of the toy shadows. Thank you. And Phil Turner got in touch with this. Jackie Oliver, great guest. I always felt that if Patrese had landed one of those early wins he probably deserved, the Arrow story would almost certainly have panned out differently. That's a good point, Phil, and thanks for getting in touch. Imagine the momentum that the team would have built up had they won as you suggest. Sadly, we'll never know. And Underbird said simply this, thank you for another great interview with a Grand Prix great. I'll second that, Jackie Oliver is a Grand Prix great for many reasons. And let's move on now to Mark Neeson, who said this. Another really interesting guest for Beyond the Grid. The story of the original Spygate with Tony Southgate and his shadow drawings right through until Jackie did business with Tom Walkinshaw, who brought Damon Hill to the Arrows Formula One team. It was a brilliant listen. Well, thank you, Mark. And yes, the original Spygate story was jaw-dropping in its magnitude. And as I said last week, the fact that Jackie continued in his pursuit of having his own Formula One team after that was a true credit to him. I could read out lots more messages, but we'll leave it there for now. And thank you to everyone who wrote in. We love hearing what you have to say. We love it. I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.